This is where the glory begins. It doesn't begin on a hillside surrounded by attentive crowds. It's not in the creaking, complaining prow of a fishing boat as storms are stilling and waves are ceasing. It's not in the forest of palm fronds and the short-lived adoration. It's not even in the righteous rage as he turns over tables in the temple. The glory begins here, in some nondescript upper room on the night before he dies. When Jesus gets down from that table, and in the sleepy post-supper haze, takes off his outer robe, wraps a towel around his waist, pours out water, kneels down and washes the feet of his friends. This is where the glory begins. Scholars say that the book of John can be divided into two. Into the chapters coming up to chapter 13, known as the book of signs, And we've talked about that in this series, that pulsing reminder, who is Jesus? Who is he? What are these signs pointing to? And then you hit chapter 13 and a new book begins, the book of glory, the story that will take us to the cross and resurrection and beyond. The relentless momentum of the last three years is changing. There's been wonder The miraculous turning of water into wine, there's been words of knowledge at the well. The healing of a man at Bethsaida, there's been the return of sight to the blind. There's been the perplexing, fearless squaring up to the authorities, the writing in the sand. And now there's something different. Now there's something that looks weak and vulnerable and powerless. And this, we're supposed to understand, is the beginning of triumph. What is this story saying to us today, in our lives, in who we are, followers of Jesus Christ, in this city, in the places that we're called to be? What does this story say to us? And what does it say to us on this day, in this service, where we hold the weight of history, that moment, that incredibly moving moment that we have shared as one body of Jesus Christ? What does it say to us when we look around the world and we see conflict everywhere, spiraling out of control, growing ever in its viciousness with no end in sight? What does this story say? The title for this sermon is The Table of Love. And we are invited then today metaphorically to gather around that table of love, but to find there perhaps more than love, something more nuanced perhaps, more challenging, something that asks something of us. I invite you to gather round with me as we go into this text. I've always loved the story of John 13. I was telling someone earlier this week how I find it incredibly beautiful. So beautiful that it's sometimes hard to preach. Although actually, I didn't have my sort of pre-sermon angst for most of the week. My normal agony and fear didn't come. 
Because I love this text so much that I thought, I can't wait to speak about this, this beautiful text on serving, how lovely it is. And actually, when I look at Peter, I often allow myself a moment of sort of condescending care for him. Poor Peter, who doesn't get it. Lucky me who does get it. I get this. So what a strong and strange thing to suddenly find myself overwhelmed by irritation as I went into this text. I realized yesterday that I was feeling really uncomfortable all day. And suddenly at night I thought, I'm angry. I am so angry because this text is not letting me sanitize it or sterilize it anymore. This text is trampling over things. This text is provoking me. This text is saying, Vanessa, there are kingdoms here that you live in and values that you live by that this story is calling into question. This is not a twee story about service. This is a story that calls everything I believe and live by into question. I live in a kingdom most of the time which tells me that my worth is measured by what I earn, or at the very most by my title. Even people who tell me that money doesn't really matter would still tell me it was responsible for me to maybe live somewhere safe or accrue enough finance that I am secure, responsible for me to have a pension fund, responsible for me to hedge myself around with the things that make me an adult. This same kingdom tells me that there's nothing wrong with the growing inequality between rich and poor, with amassing wealth for myself. I live in that kingdom most of the time. A couple of weeks ago, I read a story about one of the um, hostages, the, an American hostage who'd been killed by ISIS recently. He'd gone out to Syria as an aid worker. And when he was out there, one of the Syrians said to him, why have you come here? It is so dangerous. You are bound to get into trouble. What on earth has brought you here? And he said in his response, my life is not worth more than yours. I was really struck by that because I thought, I don't actually live in that kingdom. I live in a kingdom which has taught me to value my life so deeply, to protect my life so much that I have come to believe that my life is worth more than other people's. I won't go to Syria. I won't go to where Ebola is. And heaven forfend it comes here. Because somewhere in me, I'm carrying a belief that my life is more precious than someone else's, though I wish I didn't. I wish I didn't believe it. I live in a world, in a kingdom, that tells me that my needs are important, that my happiness is important, that my choice and my freedom to choose is important, and I should be doing things that enhance that happiness, enhance that freedom, enhance those choices. I live in a world that has brought me up to understand that where there is violence, you must meet it with violence. If there is a global conflict, the answer to that global conflict in love is to intervene with conflict. Where there is violence, you might need to meet it with self-righteous violence, violence that has a better ethic, violence that is born out of longing to protect, violence that wants to bring an end to violence, but violence nonetheless. Violence meets violence, causes more violence. There is not less violence since the Second World War. 
there is more. When Jesus, the birth of Jesus was announced to Mary, she broke out with words that she couldn't restrain, words of hope and joy and justice, words that we record in the Magnificat and we sing to beautiful music, words that say, I long for a world where the kingdom that I see now, the kingdoms of power and hierarchy and authority and wealth are reversed, are turned upside down, where the rich are brought low and the humble lifted up, Mary cried. And all the way through Jesus' ministry, you start to get these hints that actually that's what he's trying to say. Do you understand the world that you see and the kingdom that you think you know is not the kingdom that we call to? This is the kingdom of the world, not the kingdom of heaven. Do you understand? But now, it's not in perplexing parables or miracles that people can't understand. It's not in writing in the sand and who knows what he's writing. Now it's in front of their faces and they can't deny it because he has taken off his rope, put on a towel, become a slave, a humiliating, demeaning, undignified thing to do, and he's got on his knees and he's washed their feet. And he has proclaimed in that moment, another kingdom is here, the glory begins. Another upside-down kingdom has arrived where what you think you understand is about to be reversed. It's a provocative table. This is a table that will trample on what you think is right. So this is a table that says, no, you're not called to amass wealth, even wealth for your own security. You are called to give as the Lord instructs you to give, sacrificially. This is a kingdom which says that your own needs are not the most important thing, that you need to serve others. This is a kingdom that says, now if you want to save your life, you have to lose it. There is no lesson on how to keep yourself alive as long as possible with Jesus, quite the opposite. This is a kingdom that says, no violence. So in that upper room, he doesn't gather the disciples and say, in a bit, it's going to get really dark and dangerous and messy. So here's a sword, all of you, and you just go at it. Let the battle start. He takes his clothes off and he washes their feet. Stanley Hauerwas, a theologian whom I love, he says, God would rather die. God would rather send his own son to die than redeem the world through violence. The very center of what we believe, the story we celebrate, the story we live, what I claim to believe is this, that God would rather die than find redemption through violence, and I am not called to violence if I follow him. It's hard to say that on a day when we remember people who gave their lives sacrificially. It's not to demean what they gave. It's not to say that they were wrong. But it isn't the kingdom that Jesus calls us to. 
And what's tricky about all of this, what makes it even more provocative, which makes it even more difficult, is that this isn't just a thought discussion. It's not that Jesus sort of set out his agenda and then said to his disciples, what do you think? Yeah? And then asked for their intellectual assent. He said, if you want to follow me, you need to do this. This is what you do. Live it. And I want to read books about it. I want to read inspiring books about radical communities doing stuff I'm too scared to do. I love those books. I don't want to do it. The invitation is not to study or analyze. It's not to think about it or give it my assent. It's not to say, what a great idea, Jesus. It's to do it. It's to live differently with my money, even though I don't want to. It's to live differently with my life, though I want to cling on to it and believe it's worth more. It's to live differently with my choices. It's to restrain violence in my heart. So struck by what you said, Philip, about your great-great-grandfather, about how actually there wasn't enough love to restrain something. The big violence comes from inner violence, doesn't it? I won't wield a sword or throw a grenade or even a punch, I hope, ever in my life. I've got violence here. I've got violence in my thoughts and in my language. I've got violence in how I respond. I've got violence in what I want. The invitation of this kingdom the provocative kingdom trampling all over everything I believe is to give up my violence by washing feet, by serving people instead. This is a table of love, but it's really a table of provocation. Be attentive to the anger within. It was so powerful to hear that reminder that the bishop gave us that Failure transcends our national boundaries. And it's a strange day today, isn't it, where our our remembrance and our prayers get tied up in our national identity and maybe even patriotism, and we say, what does it mean to be British? And we're proud of that. Here in these walls, we have a great privilege because we get to do something even more. We get to say there are no national boundaries between us. There are no borders. There are no separate countries. We are one body. We are the body of Jesus Christ. And when he kneels down and washes feet, he says this kingdom, this kingdom of service, which is turning everything on its head, is not about rules and restrictions and exclusions. This kingdom doesn't demand that you belong to a certain religion or country or nationality. This is a kingdom that transcends all boundaries. And if you are willing to wash feet, you are a citizen of this kingdom. If you are willing to follow, you are a citizen of this kingdom. So if you are here, no matter what your nationality, your ethnicity, your religion or your denomination, no matter your politics, 
No matter your background, no matter what brought you through this door, no matter your sexual orientation, no matter how broken you feel, no matter how ashamed or how hopeful, how holy or dirty, how wretched, how good, how full of faith, how full of fear, how full of doubt, how full of certainty, we all belong. We all belong to this new kingdom. We are citizens of the new kingdom drawn together by this story, by this moment of glory. We need each other. We need one another to journey through this life. So I love about this story. It's a story of interdependence. Jesus is about to be betrayed, not once, but by twice by people he loves dearly. He's about to go through a night of gripping anguish in an olive garden. He's about to die brutally and watch his grieving mother at the foot of the cross. He's about to redeem all humanity. That's all about to come. But in this moment, instead of going off into a room and crying as I think I might do, or hiding or running away, he takes a calloused foot in his hand and he pours water over it and he touches it and he dries it. He says, we are a relational kingdom and we need one another. We are citizens of the kingdom no matter where we come from. This is a love that asks us to go further, to be vulnerable, undefended, not wall your heart up, but do what hurts. Take it where you don't want it to go. What I learned from Jesus in this moment is not some sort of zen-like ability to be indifferent to other people or indifferent to pain, indifferent to fear, but to go right into it with love. Not to not feel anything and thereby be super spiritual, but to feel everything and thereby reveal love. It is hard to love to the end of yourself and beyond. It's hard when you have no guarantee of reward or reciprocation. It's hard when you've already experienced rejection or betrayal or hurt. It's hard when it would be easier to step back and contain yourself and protect yourself. But we need each other. This is a relational kingdom. And so we must love that way. Maybe for you today, that simply means that you don't run away at the end of this service, but you stay and you have a cup of coffee. You talk to someone you've never met, you don't know. Maybe you extend welcome whether you're here for the first time or you're here for the thousandth time. Maybe you take welcome beyond yourself and into all the strangers that you meet. Or maybe that you've been holding yourself back. You have loved to certain limits. You have given to certain limits. And just today, you're going to edge forward a little bit. You're going to draw in a little bit. This is a table of provocation, but it's a table of community too. We need each other. Finally, it's a table of humility. When I was a student at Theological College, I had a placement in a very poor part of um, Bristol, a very rough part of Bristol, so rough that when I arrived, I drew up, there was a little boy with his back to me, who was about seven, and I thought, oh, how sweet, a boy has come to greet me. And when he turned around, he was smoking. <laughs> um, 
And uh, I had this placement with the most amazing woman, I'll call her Claire, who's the vicar in this, um, in this church. And I used to, she was very generous with her time and generous with her thoughts. And I used to go around to her house and sit and talk with her. And I was sitting in her house one morning and she was telling me the story of what it was like to be vicar of this place. And she said, it's really hard, actually. And she'd come as a widow and um, she, it's very hard to find acceptance in this place. People will not welcome you if you weren't born there. You do not belong. And it can take years to find acceptance. She had had bricks through her window and her door had been set alight. She'd had her tires slashed. People would ignore her on the streets. It had been really hard. So we're having this conversation, and in the middle of it, the doorbell went. And this um, woman arrived called Rosie, and with like, loads of carry bags. And Rosie arrived with her um, very hairy legs and sandals. And she sat down and she said, Claire, can you cut my toenails? And, um, and I thought, oh, gross. That is not the job of a vicar to cut someone's toenails. Surely, please don't tell me it is. Um, but that's what Judith did. She sat down. She got some toenail clippers, and she cut these absolutely minging toenails. And I was totally repelled. And, um, and then Rosie went away, and um, I was told that she comes every um, week or month or so. You know, every now and then she'll come, and she needs different things. But every month, Claire will cut her toenails. That's part of their relationship. And um, I moved from sort of... First, I found it repellent. Then as the day went on, I thought, actually, that's beautiful, isn't it? That's a picture of Jesus. That's a picture of washing feet. How amazing. And um, later that day, we had a sort of time of reflection and feedback. And Claire said to me, well, what do you make of today? And she said, I said, well, you know, I started off the day thinking, ugh, how disgusting. And now I realize that I have seen Jesus in you bending down and cutting those disgusting toenails. I get it. I see how Jesus is at work and you've moved me. I am so moved. And she was really kind to me and she smiled and she said, Oh, Vanessa, I'm not Jesus. I'm Peter. Rosie is the only person who would come to my house for years and years and years. And not only would she come to my house, but she would ask me for something. She would ask me to help her with something that she couldn't do. She would let me be part of her life and love her. She has ministered to me in a way that no one has in this place. I'm not Jesus. I'm Peter. I know how difficult it is to receive from people. As Philip was talking, you ministered to us. But I know in myself, I thought, I want you to stop. It was almost too much. How can we bear it? And I know that cultural context aside, if I said, whip off your socks and shoes right now, we're going to wash feet, you would dash for the door. I know it. I told the 9 a.m. this morning that I have had two pedicures before a foot washing service before. <laughs> I know how to prepare for these things. It is vulnerable and intimate and embarrassing and private to have your feet touched by someone you don't know or someone you do. Awful. Because it reveals all these inhibitions that we carry, all this stuff that we want to hide. It reveals the raw humanity of who I am, who you are. And as I explore those inhibitions, it, it reveals other inhibitions. How I don't want to be helped. I don't want to need mercy. 
I want to be the one who gives mercy. I don't want my pride to be broken down. I want to be the one people come to for help. I don't want to be ministered to. I want to minister because to be ministered to is to own my need for mercy, my need for healing, and my need for love. That is the invitation of this table, humility. Not humility to get on your knees and wash feet, but humility to sit there and have your feet washed. May you come to the table however you find it today. And may you be thoroughly provoked by it. May it trample over everything you hold dear so that in holiness you might discover the gospel afresh today. May you come to this table of community and remember that we need one another. May you go to the end of love and then beyond. And may you come to this table ready not just to wash feet, but to have your own feet washed. Sometimes we're so busy being Jesus, we forget that we are often Peter. May you come to this table and encounter love. Amen.